Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Coming up in this episode, Bumi Akintonwa, producer and founding partner at Diversity TV, a group set up to champion inclusion and representation across the TV industry, talks about the role the business has played in our troubled relationship with race and the lessons it can learn from the Black Lives Matter movement. But first, inspired by the Black Film Collective's recent open letter to Hollywood appealing for change within the industry, a group of women of colour working in the UK film and TV business recently penned a revised version addressing particular concerns on this side of the pond. Nisha Party is founder of Party Productions and co-author of the epistle, which quickly amassed over 5,000 signatures of support from constituents including Michaela Cole, Idris Elba, Mira Sayal, Gurinder Chada and many more. Party, whose credits include the movie Honour and BBC Two drama The Boy with the Top Knot, last year struck a co-production deal with Sony Pictures Television. She spoke with Nico Franks about the response the letter received, why class also needs to be part of the conversation in the UK, and her focus on championing Asian stories and talent. So it was in it was mid June, so um, Nisha, when uh, an open letter that you and a, and a group of other women of colour in the industry. Uh, put together an open letter for action to tackle systemic racism that amassed, uh, so it was 5,000 signatures, wasn't it, at, yeah, the, at the end? Yeah. And some of those, the people, the, the black and brown actors and members of the industry, so to sign it included Michaela Cole, Idris Elba, Mira Sayal, who I think was involved in the group putting it together as well. So tell me a bit about, first of all, the, the origins of the letter and then the the reaction to it. I mean, it all sort of, started really organically. Um, Mira and I are friends and um, in fact we've got a WhatsApp group with a kind of a bunch of Indian women that are all in the industry doing various jobs and she just sent the article through and said god isn't this just well written and summarizes kind of what we all think and um, and I read it and just thought god this is brilliant because I guess I've been reading so many articles over the last couple of months, particularly over the whole Black Lives Matter campaign. And and this one was just something that really resonated with me personally. And so we kind of just informally were like, God, you know, we should really do one for the for the UK because it was very much skewed towards Hollywood and how that system works. And in essence, it was the same, but also kind of slightly different. So everyone was like, oh, why don't you just write something and let's just see whether maybe we should send it out. And I thought, okay, well, I'll just give it a go. So I kind of just adapted it really and then shared it with them and everyone kind of put their own comments in. And then and then I was just like, we should just send this out to a couple of friends and see what happens. So I just sent it to sort of my group of pretty much, you know, just people of colour that I know in the industry. I guess I know quite a lot um, over the years. And then everyone else in the group did the same. And literally probably 20 minutes after we put it out, the signatures just went. And of course, those people then sent out to other people. And I think within the first 24 hours, we'd had like 1500 signatures. And my email box just kind of started filling with questions and this is great and that letter really resonated with me and blah 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 so we kind of just decided that maybe we should really just get this out to journalists and just see what happens so I let it run for the weekend and then we sent it out on Sunday night and I think by the time we sent it out on Sunday night um, we'd had about three and a half thousand signatures in 48 hours and and then it hit the um it hit the sort of trades on Sunday night, Monday morning very quickly. And then we got a real spike of signatures, I guess, 
a lot of people read it in the trade and then went back to read the letter and, and signed it. And then actually, you know, and it was a really amazing response. I mean, there were definitely a couple of people of colour who didn't want to sign it because... So I should also just talk a little bit about initially when we when we wrote the letter, it was from people of colour in the industry to the predominantly white industry that we work for. Um, and then what happened, or what we noticed is... Uh, we started getting a couple of signatures from white industry people, some of whom we thought, hmm, maybe you're actually part of the problem. Why are you signing this letter? But we kind of decided that being ex- exclusive in any way or suddenly removing names that we didn't approve of just felt kind of morally a bit wrong. And if they'd signed the letter, it was because they liked what they read and they wanted to support us. And maybe this was them saying, look, I, I might have been guilty, but now I'm going to change. And actually, I got a couple of really interesting emails and calls from like Alison Owen, for example, contacted me and said, I think your letter's brilliant, but I feel really weird about signing it because that aren't I the problem. And I just said, well, yeah, you are the problem. And if you sign it, you're holding yourself to account so that you don't become the problem anymore and you're going to change. And, and, and if you agree with that sentiment, then you should sign it. And if you don't, then I don't think you should. And she was like, yeah, I'm going to sign it. I'm going to change. And I just thought that's brilliant. So we kind of decided to let it run, really, and, and for anyone who wanted to sign it, to sign it. And that, of course, has also caused a little bit of criticism. And there have been a couple of, you know, my friends of colour who've said, I'm not going to sign it because white people on there that shouldn't be on there so I just don't feel right but I would say that's I mean I've only had maybe three people that have done that and then we've had 5,000 people who've gone this is brilliant let's let's sign it so you know and you're never going to please everyone right so you kind of just have to do what you (laughs) believe is right but it's had really interesting feedback since um I've had quite a lot of emails and phone calls from quite powerful white industry folk who have just called to say, you know, can we set up a call this week or next week to just follow up and have a chat? Or people kind of calling to say, you know, I know you think I'm part of the problem, but actually, you know, we've got three diverse projects on our slate and I just kind of wanted you to know that. And I was just thinking, my God, I'm not having now suddenly become the gatekeeper of, you know, everyone having to explain themselves. But actually, it was just really positive that they were kind of feeling like they needed to talk about it and I truly believe that a lot of white people in the industry are incredibly supportive but don't really know how to properly change and this felt like them saying look we really want to help tell us how to help and let's talk and you know who knows what's going to happen in six months and you know I hope we look back and go gosh that felt like a really big turning point and things feel like they're really changing but I guess it's just really early days so who knows yeah, that would be the concern, wouldn't it? That it's a false dawn and that like the people who did make, you know, who had um, concerns that, you know, the white people signing it being in a performative way, but not really committing to anything long term. Yeah. Um, but I suppose just, you know, in, in the same week, um, more or less, there, there's been the BBC announcing, I think, £100 million pounds, um, yeah, to amazing. diverse productions and then Channel 4. Uh, also setting out a six-point commitment to to be a driver as an anti-racist broadcaster. So yeah, is there a, a general feeling that this is potentially yet yeah, a turning point rather than a false dawn? Yeah, I feel really hopeful. You know, there've been many false storms over the last kind of whatever fifteen years that I've worked in the industry. Um, you know, and, and everything we're saying, I feel like we've all been saying for years. And you'll then get a little diversity scheme or some sort of 
bit of lip service to say, oh, well, you know, we're, oh, we're making this show, so that's kind of okay. And I feel like actually that's just not enough. And, and they're really, because there's been so many calls, you know, not just by my letter, but there's sort of so much going on all at the same time. I, I kind of feel like it's impossible to ignore. And so, I, yeah, I feel genuinely feel really hopeful that things will change. I really do. To what extent do you think class is also playing into this as well and the lack of representation that, that is quite clear in the UK industry? Because obviously in terms of in, intersectionality, class and race has a, has a part to play as well. Yeah. So do you think, is that an element that also needs to be addressed? And obviously I'm not expecting you to come up with a solution to that because it's, it's so, you know, it's British society and rather not just the TV industry, but how big a part does class have to play as well? I think it's massive, actually. And I also think probably the reason that I've done fairly well in the industry is because I'm quite middle class. You know, I went to quite a posh school and I speak well and I sort of grew up being surrounded by quite a lot of posh white people, you know, and I've worked pretty much for, you know, I've worked for Duncan Heath and David Heyman and a lot of posh white men. And, and, and as a result of that training, you know, I sort of feel like I know how to deal with that world. I know how to talk to them on their level. And, and I'm pretty sure that, that, you know, if I came from a different class, it would be even harder for me to kind of break through. So I definitely, you know, look, the film and television industry is incredibly posh and white. And most people at the top are, are Oxbridge type university graduates. And... And then the problem, of course, with that is they all socialise with each other because they're all friends. And, and then, you know, I guess you, one argues about how much unconscious bias then also feeds into that, that actually their social circle is all quite white and posh. And so when we go to them with, with stories about, I don't know, working class, Asian or black stories, they just don't relate to them. They, so, you know, for them, not only do they feel kind of risky or different, but, you know, they're different to them, but they're not different or risky to us because they're our stories but because there's so few people like us in that world um it's really hard those gatekeepers and commissioners just you know they're going to relate to doing yet another white period drama about world war ii because that's just it's just what they know um so yeah but i but to answer your question i think class is probably just as much of a problem as race and even though race is obviously the big flag at the moment um because of the blm stuff I hope that kind of class doesn't get ignored in all of this because I think it's really important. And is there a feeling among people of colour in the industry generally, not that you're now the official spokesman for, for, for all people of colour in the industry, but is, it, is there a feeling that there's, this needs to be a conversation that white people in the industry need to be having with themselves rather than relying on people of colour to kind of explain things to them? It, it's much more now the, the onus is on on white people to to talk between themselves really and find solutions yeah i think so i mean i feel like everything that we kind of want to say we said in that letter and now it's sort of up to them to now go okay this is what you think how do we action those points that i think are really clear and not that difficult actually to address and and i think quite easy to make a difference but yeah i mean i feel like the aim of that letter was to say this is how we feel and now you know over to you um and of course look you know we're all completely collaborative and open to working with people and if I get a phone call to say you know hey can you come and talk to us about some of your thoughts or can you help with this thing then um yeah not as long as it doesn't take, start taking up my whole life um because I've got a job then um you know I think that's that's kind of yeah that's the next step is waiting to see what what those changes will, will be and within some of the action points that the broadcasters have detailed it 
there has been a focus on on the commissioners and the background of the commissioners. Do you feel like that is potentially a crucial factor? And when we actually have commissioners, more commissioners in place from from of different different ethnicities, that's when we'll actually start to see real profound change. Yeah, I mean, I think at the moment, you know, the gatekeepers are predominantly posh white men. And so um, it becomes much harder to to break through. Um, and I know, you know, if I was if I was trying to pitch a story to someone that was a little bit more affiliated to my world, it, that you know, then you know, you resonate, um, and it makes a difference. But also, I just think from a you know from a purely commercial point of view, because ultimately, look, you know, we're working in an industry where people need to make money, and I'm not saying for a second that any of these broadcasters should be making shows that they don't feel are going to sell just because they need to you know tick a box. But actually, I, I feel like there's a real thirst from the world to hear different stories, and people are slightly bored of the same old stories. And you know that's evident, I think, with so many new shows that are coming out, particularly on sort of Netflix and in the states. But shows like Rami or Insecure, or um, you know, and even here, you know, even May I Destroy You, you know, they're shows that are created by people of color, and it feels so exciting and fresh, and they're getting good ratings. And you know, if you diversify your workforce, you will end up diversifying stories that you tell, and surely that's just a positive for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, let's talk a bit about so your production company, so um, Party Productions. Yeah. So that you've got a, a co-development and production deal, co-production deal with Sony Pictures Television. Yeah. Uh, so that was signed last year. How has the pandemic affected your work? I mean, I'm really lucky actually because I wasn't in production on anything um, when the pandemic hit. And weirdly, it feels like all the writers that are working for me have been much more focused because they're not going out and having lunches and being rude by other producers to write for them. They're just kind of like getting on with stuff. Um, and so they're all delivering scripts on time for a change. And um, commissioners, it seems like it's been much easier for me to talk to commissioners because none of them are in production. So they're spending much more time reading scripts more quickly and having more open conversations about, you know, let's just put more stuff in development while we can because no one's producing, no one's in production. What will be really interesting, I think, is when we come out, all the broadcasters are going to have so much stuff that's been put through development and there's going to be this massive pile of stuff and then how they're going to filter through and decide what gets greenlit um, and what doesn't. I think there's going to be a real battle. But yeah, um, but so for me personally, actually, you know, apart from just intensely working at home and not seeing anyone, my life hasn't really changed that much. I'm lucky. And there could be one logic that would suggest that international co-productions, because of restrictions on travel and things like that, might take a hit. But then I've been speaking to some other people who have been saying that actually no, international co-productions are only going to increase because people are going to need to uh, shoulder risk, uh, both yeah. you know financially and in in other ways. What? How are you feeling about international co-productions? Because obviously, prior to the pandemic, that was the norm in in UK drama now, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I think financially, co-productions are a kind of necessity because it's impossible to get money out of broadcasters to fund a big show. But I think what people are trying to do, or certainly what, you know, is to shoot stuff more domestically. So it might be a show that's got American money in it, but obviously it would be much easier right now, certainly in the interim as we come out of lockdown, to just shoot that show in the UK so crew don't need to get on flights which I think people are still genuinely a bit nervous about doing, or we don't need to ship actors off to, to different parts of the world. But then saying that, you know, the UK has got one of the worst death rates 
so I'm not sure if, if we'll even be able to convince a lot of actors, you know, who don't live in the UK to fly over here and shoot. And what is that going to look like? So I feel like, you know, a lot of small dramas and soaps, probably quite easy to just count, get on with it. But I think I certainly know of loads of people that are doing more ambitious drama and, and films. They're, they're really putting them back to kind of next spring now because they're international shows and you need to fly and be abroad. But I think a lot will depend. I mean, I, I work a lot with India, for example, and they're having a really bad time. And I feel like it will be harder to go out and shoot in India next year. For example, it might just take longer than we think. So I think we just have to watch the space and see which countries get back to normal more quickly. I mean, I feel like Germany, you know, people will probably be, feel safer about shooting in Germany or in Scandinavia than they might be shooting in England. Yeah, I suppose it's interesting from a production perspective because a lot of the countries that have been mentioned to me as, you know, uh, potential areas to film, like Iceland, uh, obviously, yeah. if you're trying to recreate India, it's obviously going to be quite difficult to do yeah. that in <laughs> Iceland or Scandinavia. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of shows like that where they've just said, actually, it's almost impossible. Or, you know, The Crown, for example, I was talking to the producer of The Crown last week and she just said, you know, there's just no way that we can shoot a drama of that scale under lockdown conditions you know the crowd scenes and also you know the actors aren't really going to agree to be in quarantine for 14 days before we shoot and then another you know so I think I think it really depends on the show but I think all the big ones will, will really get pushed back and then of course there'll be this massive gap that the broadcaster is going to have to fill for the next six months and I think we'll all just be watching lots of repeats. And just finally so yeah you mentioned working a lot with India and um uh, Indian stories, because in this kind of um, relates back to our earlier conversation in the sense of the stories that we've previously been used to seeing on British TV about India, which tend to focus heavily on colonialism and things like that. Yeah. Are you seeing a greater um, openness from commissioners to, to stories that differ from that? I mean, yes and no. Um, you know, it's still really hard to pitch stories that feel quite Indian, that don't have... A sort of British angle to them you know and I get that you know the BBC aren't really going to want to do a show that's you know in Hindi or that's completely set in India with no British cast because predominantly the audience is British but you know I'm developing a really big show with them at the moment about the partition of India which is a period colonial story but actually it's a bit of history that I feel no one's ever really told on film before um, and also just particularly with what's going on at the moment, you know, it's a period of history where the Brits behaved quite badly towards a country that they invaded and how India basically pulled out and it was part of the end of the empire. And, you know, so for me, that's a really important story to tell and BBC have been incredibly supportive of it. But we don't have a green light yet. So ultimately, we're going to have to wait for Piers uh, and Charlotte to, to green light. We've just submitted episode one. So we're kind of waiting to see, you know, what will happen. That's them on the phone. Yeah, I wish. But but in not in, in, sort of outside of the BBC, yeah, you know, I'm developing quite a big film that was that was set in India with Film 4. And I guess the reason why that is exciting is Dev Patel's attached to it and he's producing it with me. So, you know, there's a star there, which makes it easier, I guess, to then be able to set something in India and, and use Indian talent and Indian crew. And so I feel like if you've got some sort of British angle or a big star, yes, it's much easier. But actually... Otherwise, I think you, they'll just say, well, you know, it's an Indian project. You should be making it with Netflix India. Or So it's still quite hard to find which broadcasters and how to, will make those sorts of shows and how to pitch them so they still feel quite commercial. Nisha Party from Party Productions. 
The world is still reeling from the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police last month. The killing sparked mass protests across the globe and has pushed society to reconsider its relationship with race. TV has a large part to play in that, according to Bunmi Akintomwa, producer and founding partner at Diversity TV, a group set up at MIPCOM in Cannes to champion inclusion and representation across the international TV industry. She spoke with Inigo Alexander about the role the business has played in our troubled relationship with race, the recent scramble among broadcasters and streamers to deal with instances of on-screen blackface, and the lessons to be learned from the Black Lives Matter movement. The, the issue of black representation within the TV industry and within society as a whole has come up again since the, the death of George Floyd. And, you know, you could say that the conversation might have dissipated a bit since, but that doesn't by any means mean that it shouldn't be kept up. Obviously, there are changes that should be made. So what, what do you think the role of TV is within the wider conversation? How does TV play a part of improving black representation and helping society overcome structural racism? I think that's a really interesting question because I think you can also turn it completely on its head and ask, did TV help create it in the first place? Uh, I think that um, in, in TV there's a lot of, and there always has been a lot of stereotypes um, in characters, characterization and storylines. Uh, black characters have in the past always been portrayed as slaves or criminals or drug addicts or drug pushers, prostitutes, maids, poverty-stricken victims. Um, and every now and again, uh, and it's always a surprising character who is incredibly well-cultured and well-educated, and that's often played for comic relief. That's how it... That's, I think, how a lot of roles in the past have been. And apart from that, it's usually in a fairly tokenistic portrayal of people. So it's, that, that's a question I, I, that I think we should also, we should start with, looking not just at uh, scripted and drama, but uh, scripted programming, but also even going to news coverage, because news coverage, of course, always concentrates on things which are sensational such as, again, crime, drugs, etc., violent crime. And there is very, very little representation of normal people, which is completely the opposite of most of, of drama, which includes everybody else, or let's say non-black drama. There's, a, there's just a much broader representation. So clearly uh, a lot of things has to have to change and, and TV is very, very powerful. It's an instrument of information, but also can be one of, of propaganda. And we are, we do, it's just really a mirror that's to reflect what we are. And if it re reflects things inaccurately, then that's how people are going to be conditioned to see black people. How can we change it within the TV industry? On screen and off screen, we can change it. We can change it in the boardroom, that where people, are, where black people are very underrepresented. Represented. Writers and directors, so there are broader storylines. Influencers, so you have people who are respected um, from the community, who people actually listen to. Advisors to help broadcasters, and even in the media, just covering more executives and more, more, more creatives. I think all of these things help. And you mentioned something there that I was going to ask you about later on anyways, but I think it is a very interesting point. The issue of having tokenistic representation, um, you know, trying to figure out ways of helping, but then sort of missing the point and having it come across in a way that isn't 
actually beneficial and contributes to the issue. And that's something that I, I expect a lot of players in the industry will be scratching their heads at now, wondering how they can try and help without being tokenistic. So what would you, what would you recommend is the best way to try and do that? Well, there's so many different things. There's a lot of talk, as you know. Non-stop talk is probably not going to actually resolve anything. How do you solve the, the problem of tokenism? I think you have to attack it at different, at, at different levels. One thing which we're noticing a lot is that people are asking us for recommendations of people uh, to include. And, and, and I think it stems from people worrying not more about filling their quotas than actually going out and looking for the best. So I think it starts with excellence. I think you have to try and make sure that if you're going to recruit, if you're going to try this kind of positive recruitment where you're looking for black employees, you've also got to look for people who are actually the best at their job. That's a difficult thing to do, perhaps, because a lot of people have been excluded from the industry for a long time and they have to come back into it. So one thing, um, I, I guess we have to also think about how do people get work um, and how do you, how do they how is it that how is it sustainable? And a lot of those things are to do with your last job or the credits that you have. If you look at say for take for an example with writers uh, who are very underrepresented, an easy way is to make sure that people have en enough experience for, so that they can they can build up their work. Uh, which could mean, for instance, putting people in writers' rooms. It could mean pairing them with a writer. It could mean a director having somebody, for instance, shadowing them. It could be um, it could be uh, having assistants who haven't had that much experience working with people that have had a lot of experience. I was speaking to somebody actually uh, the other day who uh, had quite an interesting idea, which I think was really good, which was to speak to major, major production companies. Major production companies, they get repeat bookings because that's how the way the industry works. The industry works on, on experience um, and credits. And the problem often is if you're if you have this kind of spirit of tokenism if you have it's very difficult to build up those experiences and it's very difficult to get um sufficient credits so he was suggesting that if you really wanted to make a difference you could actually as a production company kind of nurture a smaller production company and you could then go to go to the broadcaster who is your trusted partner who always comes to you because it, I mean and that's something to always to remember is that broadcast it's not always a production company going to a broadcaster quite often the broadcaster will go to a production company that they've known for a long time so if that production company could then be really proactive and actually have a smaller production company which they are essentially nurturing and give them a small part of their budget that will allow them to therefore get the credits um, and then get enough work for it to become sustainable so I think that's one way I think that would help quite a lot and over the last month as well there have been a number of broadcasters here in the UK and overseas as well that have um, stepped up a bit and decided to commit to be a bit more anti-racist and try and do something more for the cause. As you mentioned before, I think there was just a lot of talk before, but not as much action as would have been needed. So now, you know, they've created funds, they've created programs, etc. But what could they what could they do to take that to the next step? I mean, is that a good starting point, or or do you think that they could still do something else to try and really help the issue from within? I think it's a great starting point. 
I think the problem often is with large corporations that they can they move very slowly and they move they, they're still relying on people that are already in the system and they haven't really understood how to bring in people who are who are not in the system um, and I think quite often in the past it's been a, just a little bit firing randomly which which leaves a lot of room for error I think there has to be a lot more in which actually stems from human resources they have to be a little bit more proactive it's possible to look beyond the immediate industry for instance when you're recruiting and i would say the most important thing to do is to actually have bame representatives who can advise you rather than making all the decisions internally i think yeah i think that's that's how that's what i would advise larger corporations to do and i remember i came across a quote i can't quite remember who said it but they they were commenting on the issue of black representation within the world of tv and they said that's not that the television industry is racist per se but it's just thoughtless about race so i was just wondering whether you you thought that was a valid assessment or whether you thought that's a fair a fair judgment it's kind of been very interesting. I, I guess um, I, I, I'm sure we're going to be talking about Black Lives Matter and how the, the movement has uh, influenced what's going on in the TV world at the moment. The conversations that I'm having with people are definitely that they want to learn. They want to learn. They want to know more. Uh, that's people in the TV industry and people outside of it. Uh, so, yes, I think to a certain degree that that is true. I think it's 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 not so much that that they yeah I think it is it's a lack of knowing knowing how to how to change things and knowing that things need to be changed. I, I mean, it's interesting to me that everywhere you look at the moment there there are watch lists. BBC has one, um, Netflix has one, and they all are educating people more about the black experience generally. And I think that has, that has made people change a lot because, yes, you're right, a lot of people probably didn't know. They probably didn't know um, how people reacted to, for instance, you know, some of the some of the comedy that's on TV or some of the other programming or what their experience was in the workplace and or whether they'd had any kind of racism and maybe bringing all these matters to light now will help them be more informed which might help them um, which which will help might, might inform their their future decisions and you touched upon comedy there and there've been a number of shows and a number of figures within the industry both here in the UK and overseas that have had to either publicly apologize in, in the recent months or had to pull programs from streamers and from broadcasters because of issues with blackface. Um, you know, in the UK, uh, Little Britain and The Mighty Boosh have been pulled by the BBC and Netflix and TV hosts like Jimmy Fallon in the States and uh, Jimmy Kimmel, if I'm not mistaken as well, have been in hot water, as well as 30 Rock actually, by having had, having featured blackface comedy on their shows. Um, and now that's been pulled and they've apologised, but what should be done to progress from there to redress and to amend those issues? I mean, because it's one thing to just pull them off air and say, hands up, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But what's the next step? Well, I actually think they've missed a bit of an opportunity there, really. Um, first of all, they should always check to see that it's really offensive because some of it is offensive and some of it perhaps is not. Um, and I think just, I think it's the same, the parallel is, is knocking down the statues 
It's the same kind of thing because some statues, some statues belong in squares, and 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 some should probably probably be um, locked away as exhibits in a museum. Uh, and I think that with these programs. Um, they should be repackaged as TV history. Um, it's, it's mostly content that's old anyway with a, with a very limited shelf life. But they could, if they interviewed the original actors or the original, the, you know, the people who made it in the first place, who now say that they want to dissociate themselves with the content and, and they add some proper historical context, and then um, they could even get the production company who are going to pull it off air anyway to donate, donate to a fund that actually helps diversity. Um, they could then bring in the, the black audience and, and ask them how this show made them feel and how it, how it empowered other people to speak to them. Uh, and, and then I think that's not just pulling it off air it's actually adding to the conversation and people are learning something you probably have to bring in the uh the people who object to it being pulled off air as well and bring in the whole conversation and i think if i think that that's a potential series <laughs> which which would be um and it, it's a better way of approaching it similarly i believe they've just done that with gone with the wind i think that they're bringing that they're about to re-release -re uh gone with the wind but with an introduction with some with some historical context. Uh, in general, moving forward, uh, then people now know it's not the right time for blackface, and it never really was. And you know, uh, I think every black person that's watched a, a, a show with blackface has felt embarrassed and uncomfortable. And there's always some somebody who's going to make some kind of joke about it, or that other people are going to think it's okay and start going to fancy dress parties, dress like that. And um, and it's it's something you have to be careful with. On the other on the other side, I do believe that, as I said, I think uh, I, said, I said at the beginning, I think you should ask black audiences whether they find it offensive or not, because there is a real danger that people are going to be scared uh, about their use of satire if everything if they have to second guess everything that they do. And in terms of uh, leading the change from within the industry, who do you think should be should be doing so? Because you know you've got two sides of the industry now. Broadly speaking, you've got the broadcasters, mm -hmm. the traditional broadcasters, and the streamers, who obviously have different roles um, within society. You know, the streamers are fairly new, whereas traditional broadcasters have long been seen as reflective of the culture that they operate in, and they have more of a duty to try and cater to it. So, who do you think should lead the charge? Well, I think that the industry has to recognise it as a commercial as a commercial opportunity, and then both sides should start not just thinking about social responsibility, but also a commercial opportunity. Because if they don't, then it will never be sustainable. I think the BBC, for instance, or other you know, local broadcasters globally, should by now have recognised that there's a reason that platforms like Netflix and Amazon are doing so well. Um, and it's because they're catering for um, a, broader a broader market. They're not just catering for uh, a specific audience. BBC knows its audience is getting narrower and narrower, for instance, and older and older. 
if you open it up and you realize that your market is not just people don't just watch scheduled programming that for the bbc they're more likely for instance if they're younger if they can get that younger audience they're more likely to watch online the online audience potentially goes well beyond your local market and and your so therefore your reach is greater and even if you restrict it geographically you're still as a broadcaster trying to bring in um, money from your export market so it makes sense for them to think for them both to approach it that way i think the more important question is whether the broadcasters particularly local broadcasters are reflecting their their market completely and whether they have realized that that is the the importance of reflecting your market if you don't reflect your market then you lose viewers so um i think it shouldn't be viewed as an altruistic move it should be viewed as as one which uh, one which is just reflecting society i think the bigger question for some broadcasters or for broadcasters at the moment is whether or not they think that they're moving into a kind of niche market which is a dangerous kind of assumption if they're going more towards an older market the older market is eventually not going to be there and if they're if they're providing programs that their um, older market can relate to, they're only doing that, then that's a, that's a commercial mistake not to embrace every aspect of your, of your audience. And just to finish up then, um, obviously over the last couple of months, the Black Lives Matter movement has really gained quite a lot of support and is starting to make, and start to advocate for a lot more changes. Um, but what do you think the TV industry should learn from the Black Lives Matter movement? What do you think are the key, um, the key lessons that they could learn? Well, we've talked about the, the watch list. They can, there's a lot of education to be done uh, and they can learn that. But the, for the industry in, in general, I think they can learn that things, can, things and people can change very quickly, that they might have been wrong <laughs> sometimes. They might have sometimes been wrong about what programming uh, and reactions uh, of people and that, there's, that they can change and they can be more, much more diverse in their programming offer, that it's good to be bold uh, people are willing to learn. One thing which I think is quite important is that history is subjective and content can be revisited, which we talked a little bit about uh, when we were talking about how about blackface and those kind of programs. I think you can you can actually go back and TV is very fond of reinventing itself anyway in one way or another but perhaps there's another way to reinvent it which is to look at, at things from a different perspective there might be uh there may to look at things from from the angle that they're do, which people are trying really desperately to do now they're trying to understand the black experience and they've realized that even if they are liberal and open-minded they perhaps they perhaps didn't understand it before and they can now and they can apply that to to other sides of the industry. They can look at, I think, uh, a lot of money was raised in, in, this, in, this, in this period and I, I think that they can think about other ways of financing as well. Writer's rooms could be open. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of ways that you can tell these stories. There's a lot of stories that are coming up which, and they should look at where are these stories? What are the best ones? What could we write? Who's going to watch them? This, these are all, all, all possibilities. You know, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, it's speeded things up. A lot of things have changed. When I first started in the industry, I think 
people were reluctant to talk. Um, and what's happened now, I'm talking about actually the, the, these kind of, the kind of executives that now we're meeting through Diversify TV and the kind of executives who are in the, and creatives who are in the TV industry. Perhaps they felt a little bit alone before and now they feel they are empowered to speak and and the real difference um, which Black Lives Matter has taught us or taught people in the industry and what hopefully they're learning from is that it's really important to listen it's really important to listen um, and then make a decision and I think that that is the answer to to nearly everything is to to actually listen to who you think that you're representing if you're going to be if you're going to be more inclusive include people in the conversation if you're going to talk about representation then make sure that your decisions about representation are are part of the are part of the conversation if if you're going to be more diverse then look at diversity on every level and if you're going to think about quotas also think about how those kind of quotas work um, so that you can do that effectively so that you're not just ticking boxes you actually are using it to the advantage of not just the black audience or the black industry executives you're actually making better programming because that's what it should all be about it should be about diversity should be about making better programming Bunmi Akintomwa from Diversity TV that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow but in the meantime stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online on mobile and social media thanks for listening